0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And now I'm here at the Advent, Uh, seven churches. Uh, I feel like that farmer's uh, commercial, you've seen it on on TV. We have seen, uh, we've seen almost everything. We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. So you can identify with uh, John's uh, spirit-given letters to the seven churches. Uh, That's our focus for the day. Um, My introductory comments are gonna come at the end, but I'm gonna begin with the front of your notes, First Love, Witness, chapter two, verses one through seven. Uh, Let me read that. You'll see that in the left column is the scripture, And then First Church of Ephesus is our reflections. And I'm going to go fairly quickly through these reflections. One of the things that in preaching the book of Revelation, I think we tend to get bogged down in the seven letters. And by the time we finish chapter three, we've finished our series in the book of Revelation. Uh, That's something that I'd like to avoid. I'd like us to see these seven one-minute sermons, one-minute messages. It only takes a minute to read the letter to the church. Those seven one-minute letters were circulated among all seven of the churches. So they read each other's letter. And it becomes the foundation from which the whole letter of the revelation is based. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, thanks for this opportunity to be in your word with sisters and brothers in Christ. Please guide our understanding into a deeper way of understanding you and reflecting that in our lives. We ask this in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So reading from Revelation 2, 1 through 7, first love. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember, there's seven visions of Christ in the book of Revelation. The first vision we just saw last week, from that first vision in chapter one, a phrase is taken to introduce Christ to each church. So by the time you get through all seven letters, you've basically had that first vision repeated. And so these lines, which I've italicized, the one who holds the seven stars, which means the cosmos is in his hands and walks among the golden lampstands. Here is the one whose sun shines with all the brilliance that can possibly um, uh, illumine and yet is reflected in the light of the church the seven golden lampstands verse 2 i know your deeds your hard work your perseverance i know you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary what church would not like that commendation. I mean, look at it. You've worked hard, your deeds are good, you're persevering, you don't tolerate wicked people, you've tested those who've claimed to be true but are not, you've persevered, you've endured hardships, you've not grown weary. Boy, if we could say that about the Advent or any of the seven churches I've served, I think as a pastor, I would be just very pleased. But the Lord isn't. Uh, It makes me think of, uh, you know, if you go to the doctor and you're in good health and everything checks out and all the blood work is fine, but then, well, there's this tumor in your lung. Well, You know, you're not going to think about anything else but that which is wrong. Uh, Verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans is a code word for those who have compromised the faith in the culture. Literally, Nicolaitan means victory people. Uh, We might translate it success people. Uh, They have found a way to negotiate the relationship with culture that is self-serving and yet keep their Christianity. So it is a way of speaking of those that have kind of idolatrized the culture um, and have assimilated into the culture, all contained kind of just in a word, Nicolaitan. Verse 7, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God again, just like there's a phrase that introduces Christ, there's a phrase that concludes the letter, that phrase points, fo- points forward in the letter to the new heaven and the new earth and to the city of God and the garden of God. And so something's taken from the conclusion of the book, something's taken from the first vision of Christ in order to create this one-minute sermon, one-minute message uh, to the church to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? And biblical scholarship, there's a debate between, well, how do you interpret this angel? And for some, it has been, well, this is the the senior pastor of the church. Uh, This is the messenger to the church. I tend to go with the fact that there is an angelic being. We'll talk about angels later when we look at the book, but... There's a guardian angel for the church through which this message is mediated. So it doesn't fall on the shoulders of one human being to communicate this message. This message is being communicated by God through his messengering system. And pastor and people alike live under this message. Richard Mao, who uh, past president of Fuller Theological Seminary, uh, writes, the church is in a really bad shape, almost as bad as the first century. Speaking of the church today, the church is in really bad shape, almost as bad as the first century. Sometimes we have idealized notions of the church in the first century, and in a way these seven letters speak to that that the kind of things that we suffer and deal with and negotiate today, they, right from the start, had to deal with and wrestle with. So I make some comments on the, uh, in the second column of the First Church of Ephesus. Uh, and maybe that third paragraph, hidden in their strengths, which were many, was a weakness that was deadly. They'd lost their first love for Christ. It's hard to sustain that first love, isn't it, through the decades? Um, for a church and for us personally, uh, what would it be like to go back to the freshness of finding Christ? Uh, the uh, the joy of truly being forgiven? Um a life that has a a purpose and an orientation that is God-glorifying and pleasing. The danger when the loss of first love and all these other things are being maintained and even to hardship and perseverance is that we are doing it out of duty. We're doing it out of tradition. We're doing it out of habit. We're wired this way but we've lost the sense of, of passion for it. Um, we've lost the joy of it. Um, and that's the, tr- the concern at the Church of, of Ephesus. Boy, you can see why there'd be the, ten- uh, the tendency to just wanna spend, if you're preaching, uh, 30 minutes on this particular very important concern. But we're going to move on to the band of martyrs in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is your third column. And there is no uh, condemnation to the church of Smyrna. It's all positive. But the positive is a difficult positive. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, Yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown." Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who's victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. It's not difficult to see that the thing that is most needed by the church at Smyrna is courage, a courage to withstand the ten days. Now, as we've said before, numbers are not magical in the book of Revelation, they're meaningful and there is a meaning that is attached to 10, which is a sign of completeness and fullness. So the 10 days of persecution um, is a way of speaking of a limited, but complete, the testimony that this church has in the light of being persecuted. We might wish that it was 10 literal 24 hour days, Rather than 10 is a symbol of the complete experience of being persecuted. Among the churches today that this would especially apply for you, you think of the church in North Korea or Yemen, uh, especially in parts of China. Uh, My brother lives in Hong Kong and has for the last 20 years and... uh, uh, It'll be a game changer if Hong Kong, inv- uh, if China is invaded uh, by the the military, um, the end of the life as they've known it will probably be experienced. Um, and he would see part of this struggle uh, as a struggle for uh, the freedom to worship and the freedom of Christians to be able to proclaim their faith uh, in a state that is increasingly. Um, tightening and uh, tightening its surveillance of its citizens, uh, but there's places of intense persecution um, in northern Nigeria. Um, we have heard from Ben Kowashi here of the the intense kind of persecution that they face uh, on a regular basis. This church is only commended. And uh, encouraged um, to be faithful uh, in those ten uh, those ten days. Uh, uh, if we turn the page to the third church, the labeled Urban Fidelity, uh, the Church of Pergamum. Pergamum was uh, a beautiful city, uh, and it was known uh, from its arche- uh, archaeological findings as to be. A, A fairly sophisticated, great city, uh, and yet this is not what the Lord identifies about Pergamon. To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, the only named believer in the book of Revelation, Antipas. My faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So you have a a bit of a contrast between the beauty of Pergamum as a known Asia Minor city, and yet the Lord identifying it as uh, the place where Satan has his throne. I don't think you could say anything worse about a city than that. Um, So it's paradoxical, the beauty of Pergamon versus uh, God's assessment of it. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Uh, Numbers 31 describes, uh, well, there are several chapters in Numbers. Remember, uh, Balaam was hired by the king of Moab, Balak, to curse the people of Israel. And if you recall, it's the donkey who spoke back to Balaam, that he was on the wrong track. Three times, um, There's a heightened theatrical sense of Balaam about to curse Israel, but instead he blesses. But then some chapters later, Balaam gives to Balak the strategy for dealing with Israel. Just have your women marry Israelite guys and seduce them, and you'll have your compromise that you're looking for. And so this is hearkening back to a biblical narrative that describes assimilation into a culture where you lose your focus on God in Christ, uh, where you compromise with the culture. Uh, It's a sobering reflection in the light of second and third generation loss in the kingdom of God. Uh, and how difficult it is to sustain and to pass down that faith from one generation uh, to another. Verse 15, uh, Likewise you also who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, again, repeated, Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the ones who, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone. In other words, their identity will be in God with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Are you getting any impression from these letters to the churches? And what is that impression that comes to your mind with these letters? And how would these go down today if the Advent received a letter, uh, as it were, a message by the Spirit speaking to us, um, we were into uh, the Ephesus, the Smyrna, the Pergamon, the uh, and the challenge to faithfulness in the light of our culture. Uh, And how uh, how does the church here relate to the larger culture? And to what degree are we properly antithetical to the culture? And to what degree have we assimilated into the culture? so that we are compromised. We don't have pagan deities that we'll bow to, like the first century, but we do have pagan commitments that we would struggle with. Um, And it's understanding in the light of those pressures what it is to really follow God in Christ as a church and as individuals And that's what I think these letters are getting at. Um, And it's spiritual direction that uh, is not overly complex. One of the things that uh, impresses me about the book of Revelation is that what it is to obey and to follow Christ is really very simple. Faithfulness is simple. The rhythms of grace practiced in one's life. Um, the understanding that the word of God is to be grasped and embraced. What it is to live out the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not saying doing it is simple, but what it is to do is simple and straightforward. That there's really no mystery to discipleship. Discipleship is very clear and straightforward. But when it comes to work, And really being known as a follower of Jesus Christ in terms of uh, the integrity, um, the clarity, in a way the simplicity of one's faith, um, that's a challenge. Uh, A 21st century challenge that is comparable to the first century challenge. Well, let's move on to the idol-resistant. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Uh, To the angel of the church in Thyatira. Third column out. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service, perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I'll strike her children dead then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, Jezebel is kind of code language for a sort of radical pluralism. Remember, Jezebel was married to Ahab. Uh, Jezebel uh, encouraged Ahab to um, honor the Canaanite gods, particularly Baal, and to establish shrines and religious festivals to honor Baal takes this Israelite uh, king and through Jezebel's influences has him deeply compromise uh, the faith. Uh, Jezebel's the one who was responsible for setting up Naboth so that Naboth got killed so that Ahab could have his uh, vineyard. Uh, Jezebel stands for that. There's a particularly emphasis here on the immorality, the sexual immorality. You do realize <laughs> that if as a church, our young people remained sexually pure and saw fidelity to the faith in relationship to sexual purity, the impact that that would have and yet the pervasive kind of compromise that comes in the 21st century when it comes to Christian young people. Uh, that's what I, as a pastor, that's what I see here in that paragraph about Jezebel and and how to convince young people that uh, they really do need to save themselves for marriage or for a chaste singleness. And God is honored with that. And how do you communicate that? Effectively. When I preached on 1 Corinthians 6 in the refectory earlier this year, which is the passage that sort of zeroes in on that, the feedback I got was that I was legalistic. Uh, now, I don't think I was legalistic, I think I was simply teaching what the Apostle Paul was teaching about sexual morality. Uh, I want to find ways to communicate to young people clearly, thoughtfully, compassionately of the importance of sexual purity for their sakes and for the witness of the gospel's sake. Now, of course, you know, I can't say that without saying I think there's tremendous grace in forgiveness and a process of repentance that leads to a profound faith and obedience to Christ in young people that have fallen. We've all fallen, and we do fall. Um, So I hasten to add that, but this is the level at which St. John is conversing with the church on an issue that practical and real. Verse 24, uh, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, (laughs) it's thought that Satan's deep secrets might have to do with the fact that grace covers all of your sin regardless. And grace is this, grace is that, a kind of cheap grace. You give yourself grace rather than Christ's grace. Satan's deep secrets is, well, it doesn't really matter anymore because you're you're graced by Christ. Verse 25, except to hold on to what you have until I come. Verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter, a reference to Psalm 2 and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So, um, it's amazing how much can be covered in a minute. Um, We have uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Let's turn all the way to the last page, and to we've got a minute to do the true riches uh, that is described in the church of Laodicea, the seventh church. If you're into this study, you can take these notes, and you can uh, read it and think about it yourself. Uh, so reading from chapter 3, verse 14 through 22, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever's ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you take all of these letters together, what is asked of the believer is love, courage, Faithfulness, holiness, authenticity, steadfastness. And finally, with the Church of Laodicea, humility. They think they've arrived. What the Spirit says to the Church is that they're far from arriving. They're pitiful. They think they're wealthy, but in effect, they are poor. I guess if there was any church that kind of covers the American scene, it would be this final one, probably. Uh, This description, uh, I'm humbled by believers that I meet from other parts of the world. Uh, Five times to Mongolia, um, about that many times to northern Ghana. Uh, Both of those churches strike me as first century churches. Um, The gospel really didn't take root in Mongolia until the late 90s. Uh, in northern Ghana, which is predominantly Muslim. uh, The gospel has only recently taken root, so most of these believers are first-generation believers in both places, and there is a a vitality and a vibrance. Um, I took mission trips not so much for them, although I was teaching pastors in both places, um, intensely so. I found I fed off their energy their spirituality coming back home to San Diego. And I would actually sort of say to myself, I'm good for another six months. Uh, because it just, uh, there's a sense of, of vitality that the church in Mongolia, the church in Cambodia, the church in Ghana, that we have experienced as being really committed to Christ. And that plays itself out. And all the kind of confusion and everything that you would expect of people coming in, uh, of being true to Christ in a difficult culture. Uh, We need some of that here, some of that clarity, some of that intensity, some of that passion. We need that kind of steadfastness and courage and faithfulness. Uh, Making decisions that we would not make apart from being devoted to Jesus Christ. Uh, positions we would not take apart from that commitment to the gospel. Uh, I'm going to pick up the study of Revelation in October. Uh, so if if you've been into this, please don't uh, give up. Uh, come back um, in October I think I'm going to spend most of the year in Revelation uh, just keep moving through it Uh, the best way to do this book though is to finish chapter 3 and move right away into chapter (laughs) 4 to the heavenly throne vision of Christ uh, the lion and the lamb uh, picture of Christ let me pray for us Lord God help us as we seek to follow you in a way that pleases you and glorifies you We do this not in our own strength or in our own wisdom, but in that which you've given to us through the Holy Spirit. But we're involved in that, and we ask for your help. In the name of Christ, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.